3 triple Z. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. To life. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, it's L'Chaim time, to life, Jewish life and more. And more it is with another full program ahead of us, albeit with our regular radio tour guide, Effie Yacobi, MIA, as he is out in the field being an ambassador for Israel with his great guiding. If you'll be back with us next week. I mentioned in the introduction last week that the UN, United Nothing, hosted a Kumbaya Solidarity event in the General Assembly for the Palestinians on the 29th of November, the symbolic day the UN voted in favour of the partition plan for the British mandate Palestine as a forerunner to the vote in favour of the establishment of the State of Israel, May 1948. Well, surprise, surprise, in the next few days after the Kumbaya Palestinian Solidarity event, the anti-Semitic United Nothing passed another three more hostile anti-Israel resolutions against Israel, adding to the more anti-Israel resolutions against Israel compared to the rest of the world combined. I ask again, please tell me I'm wrong when I describe the UN as being hostile to Israel, anti-Semitic. I seriously doubt that I am. I also spoke last week about David Draymond, the lead singer of the very popular heavy rock band, Disturbed, travelling to Israel to light a candle for Ellie Kay of blessed memory, the recent victim of Hamas terrorism in Jerusalem. Well, we're kicking off tonight's L'Chaim with a clip of the mensch, David Draymond in Jerusalem, with his powerful message and leading some singing, which will be followed by two more very interesting guests and another on-point David Schulberg L'Chaim mythbuster. This is L'Chaim, two live Jewish life and more, here on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. I'm Yisrael Chai. How do you feel walking the same way that Ellie Kay did? Creepy. <laughs> I've walked this path more times than I can count. So where was the actual spot? The it, it was um, a little here. bit uh, up here, yeah. Um, the attacker was inside the Luxor Mosque. He got out. And uh, he pulled an automatic uh, uh, gun. Oh, I remember, uh, I saw it. Yeah, and uh, Ellie was right on the moment. Mm-hmm. He shot him many times at the beginning. He was uh, severely injured, but then he shot him one more time in the head. Of course, right? Yeah, I don't know why specifically this time broke me. I guess because... I had walked that path so many times going to the coastal. I always used to take a shortcut through the ship. So how does it feel walking the streets again? You've been in this path for so long in your life. Walk these stairs, walk this pathway, walk the exact same direction that Ellie did. A hundred times, a thousand times, I don't know how many times. But it's nice to be able to show everyone and to make a statement we're not afraid, and that we're not going anywhere. I refuse to be intimidated. It infuriated me the way they covered the incident. The American media, the British media, the European media. It was terrible. What did you see in their coverage? Palestinian shot dead. Not that there was a terror attack. It was so biased. 
and so easily used and manipulated as a tool to sow more hatred of our people. If you were the news editor, what would you write? The truth. And that, is that a terrorist, a Hamas terrorist, committed an unjustifiable terror attack again and shed innocent blood again. You seem furious. Oh, beyond. Beyond. Furious doesn't quite cover it. Does all Jewish superstars in the United States feel the same as you feel? No. And why is that? They don't have the connection I do. What connection? My father was a Tzanchani, you know? So was oh. my grandfather. My grandmother was also in the army. She, my whole family has a tremendous history here, has tremendous history defending this country and being proud of who we are and what we stand for, and that's never going to change. You can do it here, David. Just happen, happen just right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> תשלח עזרך מקודש ומציון יסדיך. אלה ברכב ואלה בסוסים, אנחנו בשם אדוני אלוהים נזכיר. הם עקרו ונפלו, ואנחנו קמה ונתעודד. אדוני אשיע המלך יעננו ביום קרינו. אמן. עם ישראל, עם ישראל, עם ישראל. It was very, very meaningful. It was overwhelming to see so many people here. Mm -hmm. It was very, very heartwarming and gratifying, and I'm, I'm glad that, that everyone came. I'm glad that you know, we could do something to, you know, during this holiday of Hanukkah, you know, to shed a little bit more light in the darkness, and hopefully uh, some of that energy is reaching L.E.K., and some of that energy is reaching his family, and may his memory be a blessing to them. When you are in a position like I am, or when you're in a position like Gal Gadot is in, or any of the people that thankfully have the gumption and the wherewithal and the courage to do what we're doing, the amount of danger, real, real tangible danger that you put yourself in in order to be a voice is, you know, Frightening doesn't cover it. What do you say about, like, when the Palestinians are saying that we live under occupation? They're not justifying just murders, but they say there's other side here that maybe you should also talk with them or about them. Of course. Do you, do you feel course. them? Listen, I feel that everyone in this part of the world, being as close as we are in blood lineage to one another, particularly Arabs and Jews, mm -hmm. we are both sons of Abraham. We both come from the same bloodline. We, are, we both essentially worship the same God. We are family, and we should be treating each other as such. Maybe they say family don't occupy the family. No. Well, that depends on how you determine occupation, doesn't it? How, how, you define how, how you determine it? Well, to me, the only occupation we are having right now is occupying the place that has been our home since the early days when we first came over here. There's no reason why we can't coexist with each other and why we shouldn't coexist with each other. It's not occupation if it's your home. It's, it's always a pleasure to come back home. And it's always a pleasure to be back with my family and 
Hopefully we get to come back again soon as a band and, and be able to play another show here. And Maybe you'll move here, that's it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe, maybe I already did and I didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, David Draymond. As I said, mensch. And definitely disturbed. Disturbed with the world's hostile anti-Semitic attitude and treatment towards Israel. Up next, my guest, Lynn Julius, is also disturbed by the world's flagrant one-sidedness and selective memory. In 2014, the Knesset established the Memorial Commemoration Observance of Yom Litzion HaYetziah VeHagarush Shel HaYehudim Marpsot Arav Um Iran, the day to mark the expulsion and departure of the Jews from Arab countries and Iran. November 30 is a date that was chosen since it's symbolically the day following November 29, the day the United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine was adopted. And when many communities of Jews in Arab countries and Iran started to feel the pressure and hostility from their Arab and Persian neighbours, and as a result, they were forced to leave their countries. The exodus of 850,000 plus Jewish refugees from Arab and Muslim countries commencing 1948. I'm delighted to have join us tonight on L'Chaim, Lynn Julius. Lynn is a journalist and co-founder of Harif, the United Kingdom Association of Jews from Middle East, Middle East, from the Middle East and North Africa. Lynn Julius, welcome to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Well, thank you very much for having me. Lynn, could you please tell our L'Chaim listeners what Harif is all about? Well, Harif is the UK Association of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. It was founded about 16 years ago now with the objective of raising awareness of the history and culture of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. And the reason was because, well, I live in Britain in a majority Ashkenazi community. Most of the diaspora, I think, except for France, is majority Ashkenazi. And there is very little knowledge of the existence of Mustafa Abdim or Mizrahim. Well, understandably, because they are a, a small minority of the Jewish community. It's very important, I feel, to know about their history because they are an essential part of Middle Eastern politics The Jews from the Middle East and North Africa are almost extinct now. The communities, I mean, are almost extinct. Practically everybody's been driven into exile and only 4,000 Jews are left. Of course, there are still communities in Iran, about 8,000, and uh, there's one in Turkey, uh, estimated to number about 10,000. But the Arab countries have more or less wiped out their Jewish communities. And this is something which, if people know about it, it absolutely transforms their perception of the Middle East conflict. Because the truth is that two sets of refugees were produced by the conflict. One set is very well known, the Palestinian refugees, and the other set is almost unknown. And this is what I was trying to do when we set up Harif. And the name Harif, spicy, clever, smart, or all of the yeah, above? Yeah, very good. All you of, got it. All you of the got above. it. <laughs> all of the above. It also has a meaning in Arabic, which we thought was rather nice. I think it means autumn in Arabic. Oh, lovely, lovely. Spicy is lovely. I like a bit of Harif. Lynn, we hear ad nauseum about the so-called Palestinian refugees, all four, five hand-me-down generations of them. 
Yet the anti-Semitic world and anti-Semitic UN choose to acknowledge very little about the 850,000 Jewish refugees from the Arab Muslim world and Iran, if at all. You've written a book, Uprooted, how 3,000 years of Jewish civilization in the Arab world vanished overnight. Please take us through that and your reason for putting pen to paper about this hostile, tragic exodus of Jews at the time. Well, I'm the daughter of Jewish refugees from Iraq. They came to England in 1950. They were amongst a small minority who actually didn't go to Israel. And uh, as I was saying before, there's very little known about these Jews. And I wanted to raise awareness. There is, in fact, almost nothing written about them. The first mainstream book on the subject was written by Sir Martin Gilbert and is called In Ishmael's House, and that was published in 2010. But other than that, it's a sort of very niche academic subject. You know, a few obscure academics in ivory towers have written about it, but it really hasn't reached the public at large. And this is what I was trying to do. You know, it's meant to be a readable, accessible book. It's got 21 stories, first-hand stories by various Jews from Arab countries. And, you know, I really want to set the record straight in this book. It actually grows out of a blog that I've been updating every day for the last 16 years called Point of No Return. And after about 10 years of doing this, I thought, well, I've learned so much and, you know, perhaps I should put the highlights in a book. And this is what I've done. Well done. About 600,000 of these Jewish refugees went to Israel, doubling the population overnight. Little Israel, with absolute meagre resources to house, feed or to employ these newcomers properly, went about absorbing the refugees in what were very difficult times, with the Mizrahim moving on, rebuilding their lives and making a massive, massive blessed contribution to Israel. The Palestinians chose victimhood and to be political pawns. Lynn, why is it important to include the Mizrahim exodus in the peace settlement equation? Well, I think if you only take into account one set of refugees, the Palestinian refugees, you know, it's not truthful, it's distorted, and it's unbalanced. And therefore, you know, that's why the Jewish refugees are so important. Although, of course, they wouldn't consider themselves as refugees now. They've been fully absorbed and resettled, whether in Israel or in the West. But of course, as you say, the Palestinians have been weaponized. Uh, They've been kept in this refugee status for three generations now. I think we need to remind the world that this other set of Jewish refugees has actually been resettled. A humanitarian solution has been found for them. But that doesn't mean that the Palestinians, you know, should be seen as the only victims here. And incidentally, there were more Jewish refugees than Palestinian refugees Uh, Also, the Jews were the largest non-Muslim population of refugees from the Middle East up until the exodus of Christians from Iraq in 2002. Not to dismiss the financial and uh, business wealth that was confiscated from the expelled Mizrahim, Jewish refugees own over 100,000 square kilometres, more land than Lebanon and Jordan combined, and still hold deeds on these Arab lands. Again, should this not be a spotlighted issue as part of the peace deal? Yeah, absolutely. When you say they've got deeds, well, of course, a lot of them left in such a hurry that a lot of them do not have the deeds. And in fact, a disappointing number 
of refugees filled in claims forms. And this has hampered the effort to actually quantify how much was lost. But there is an organization called Justice for Jews from Arab Countries, JJAC, and they've been conducting an audit, an assessment of how much was actually lost. And I don't think they've actually announced the figures officially, but it is rumored that about 300 or 330 billion dollars of property and assets were lost by Jews in Arab and Muslim countries. And this figure dwarfs the amount lost by Palestinians, which is estimated to be something like 30 billion. As you say, it puts things into perspective. You know, we hear so much about Israel, I don't know, grabbing land in the West Bank or something like that. And yet, uh, when you consider the enormity of what Jews lost in the Middle East as a whole, you know, it really puts things into perspective. Absolutely. And I've got an idea that that figure of 330 billion goes back a number of years. So it's certainly worth probably a lot more, getting close to a gazillion. These Jews in the Arab countries in Iran were not part of the War of Independence and were punished for what went on in Israel, namely victory and survival. I mean, you believe the understanding of the Jews of the Middle East is a key to understanding the whole Middle East conflict. How so? Yes, I do. And I think what we've seen is a gradual kind of erosion of minorities in the whole Middle East. And, you know, even those minorities with no Israel of their own have been persecuted and have been made to leave. I'm thinking of the Yazidis, I'm thinking of the Copts, the Assyrian Christians. I I believe you in in Australia have a rather large community of uh, Yazidis, Assyrians and Mandeans. And these are the sort of original indigenous populations of Iraq, together with the Jews. And so we've seen this sort of gradual process of ethnic simplification, if you like, so that the whole Middle East and much of North Africa is now monolithically Muslim and Arab. And they've managed to get rid of all their minorities. And so I do see what's happened to the Jews as part of this process You know, it's even happening in Israel, where by this process of intimidation and harassment, Jews are leaving mixed towns. We saw it in May, in Akko, for instance, uh, or in Ramle. And so we've got to stop this. You know, like Israel is the last bastion, if you like, of Jewish life in the Middle East, the Jews having been kicked out of everywhere else. And I think it's worth saying that the Jews are an indigenous people of the region. They have every right to be there. They have every right to have a sovereign state in the area and to have self-determination. And in fact, since we know it's been a very hostile uh, place and it's very difficult to survive in this region, the only way to survive really is to be able to defend yourself in your own sovereign state. And the Jews are lucky enough to achieve this in the state of Israel. I mean to that. As you indicated, the greater number of Jews were displaced uh, than the Palestinian Arabs from Israel. And however, the plight and the disposition of the Jewish refugees remains an unresolved and unrecognised injustice. Do you feel that with your book you've gained any traction? Are we getting extra exposure out there? Well, I hope so. I think it has made a difference. I've given dozens of talks about the book. It's now in uh, Norwegian, in Portuguese and in Arabic. 
which is actually very exciting. Uh, the Arabic translation has just been put on uh, online. So the book is not actually going to be published as such, but people will be able to access this website and read it online. And uh, we hope that it will, you know, change people's views and uh, give them more information about what actually happened instead of, you know, the lies and the myths that people usually um, believe. You know, they, they might get some proper information, some facts. Norwegian's very interesting. They, you know, they have a propensity to be a bit hostile to Israel. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been very lucky that there is a pro-Israel group in Norway called MIF, who are composed of, you know, sympathetic Christians and, and others who actually, you know, do understand Israel's point of view. And they publish a book in Norwegian every year. And two years ago, they selected my book to be published and therefore, I was lucky enough to be invited over there for a launch, and it was all very exciting. I hope it sells well and uh, people take notice. Lynn, if people want to follow you and Harif and perhaps get a, a hold of your book, what should they do? Well, my book is for sale on Amazon and other reputable <laughs> sites. You're welcome to join the mailing list at Harif. We have a website, www.harif.org. And we've been running a very active Zoom program since the pandemic began. In fact, our next uh, speaker is an Australian journalist. And she will be speaking on the 14th of December about the Jews of Indonesia. So that might interest your audience. She will specifically be focusing on the Iraqi Jews who settled in Indonesia. But I do invite you all to join our mailing list and keep up to date with our activities. That sounds like a very, very interesting Zoom. Lynn Julius, co-founder of Harith, the United Kingdom Association of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, author of the book, Uprooted, How 3,000 Years of Jewish Civilization in the Arab World Vanished Overnight. Many thanks for joining us on Lachaim to Life, Jewish Life and More with your wonderful knowledge and the insight of the Mizrahim journey to and in Israel. Yasha Koyach to you, and I'll be joining the mailing list. Well, thank you. I look forward to seeing you online. I'm not afraid to
walking around every day playing games and facing scores. Trying to make other people lose their mind. Well, I'll be careful when you don't lose yours. proxy Syria blaming Israel for airstrikes. Just days after Iran itself practicing air defense above their nuclear sites in Natanz. For Israel News Talk Radio, I'm Mordechai Schenker. On a map of Israel and the region, find Tel Aviv. Follow the Mediterranean coast north past Haifa. Above Israel, first comes Lebanon, still on the coast. Then comes Syria. Up most of the way north to Turkey, there's the Syrian port called Latakia. Apparently, the target was one or more commercial shipping containers, the airstrike at the very least starting a fire, social media videos showing smoke billowing up. The government-run Syrian Arab news agency Sana'a calling it Israeli air aggression. Sana'a saying more than one container caught fire from the attack, Syrian military source adding no people hurt. Israel does try to limit casualties, especially non-combatants. At least one Israeli military analyst saying maybe the target an Iranian shipment of weapons and missiles, but no quick confirmation that it really was Israel. Iran routinely supplies weapons, missiles, and training when needed to terrorist groups in Syria, Lebanon, and Gaza, which costs a lot of money. The U.S. sanctions that former U.S. President Donald Trump increased against Iran limit Iran's cash flow. Iran trying to convince the U.S. Biden administration to lift sanctions as an early stage in a possible deal that in exchange for a lot of money, Iran would again promise to slow down enriching and amassing uranium at higher concentrations and working toward nuclear bombs, at least for a few years, and to allow limited access to an atomic watchdog agency. Much of that nuclear work happening near their city, Natanz. Over the weekend, Iranian air defense firing a missile over Natanz to test their air defense units. Don't worry, Iranian state media reporting the missile above the nuclear facilities was at no point of any danger to the public. 
But Iran's nuclear team does have reason to worry because Israel does not expect a Biden deal to be strong enough to stop Iran from building a bomb. So Israel months back allocating five billion shekels to become able to single handedly attack Iran's nukes probably includes buying some mother-of-all bombs from the U.S., bunker busters to disrupt the deep underground nuclear facilities, also to cover the costs of intensive training for those attacks, even some materiel to help against retaliation. Defending against closer-range terrorist weapons, border police and soldiers working on high alert at security checkpoints in Judea and Samaria, the extended hills outside Jerusalem, after a 16-year-old Arab terrorist from the biblical city of Shechem or Nablus ramming his car into an Israeli security officer, seriously wounding him in the head and chest. There have been five similar lone wolf Arab attacks in three weeks. Coordinated? Hard to say. There might just have been some really powerful PLO television broadcast. But Defense Minister Benny Gantz ordering a full investigation to figure out what our troops can learn to do to be safer while manning those checkpoints. That's Judea and Samaria, where the PLO Arab government sits, the one formed by the controversial Oslo Accords in Ramallah. Some Hamas, other terrorist groups there too, but Hamas's big terror industrial enclave is in Gaza, where they spent a decade and a lot of aid money building hundreds of miles of terrorist tunnels, some to sneak under the fence to surprise attack Israelis, but most to travel and transport weapons, missiles, Israel bombing many of those tunnels, and Hamas might be looking to rebuild them, or maybe this one guy was just spelunking. One such tunnel east of Gaza City collapsing, killing a Hamas terrorist. I'm Mordechai Schenker, Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Lior Attar, better known simply as Lior, is an independent Australian singer-songwriter based in Melbourne and is renowned internationally for his beautiful voice and music that radiates truth and sincerity. Lior was born in Rishon LeZion, Israel, and he and his family moved to Australia when he was 10. He has composed songs, theatre scores, and written music for the screen. Welcome to L'Chaim, Lior. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Lior, was music an integral part of your life as a child? It was, but it was something that I, I kind of came to myself. My parents were music lovers. They didn't have the opportunity for any music education as such, so they didn't play an instrument or anything like that. My dad's a great lover of classical music, and mum's more of a folky. But, you know, it was sort of around the house. I think that what was more formative was just the beautiful Hebrew songs that I was hearing when I was growing up. I, at a very young age, recognised that they left a strong emotional imprint and I wanted to follow that place where those songs came from. When did you realise that you had this creativity? I mean, creativity is an incredibly uh, intangible quality. When did it hit you? Yeah, it is a broad concept, isn't it? I think it was a gradual thing. I mean, when you look back, you can recognise defining moments. And one of those, is I remember I was probably about seven or eight years old and there was a song, like a ballad that came on TV. It was a Hebrew song that a singer-songwriter was playing. And I remember sort of just kind of freezing and, and it sort of struck me that I was being moved by this thing that was very quick in the way that it was moving me. It was very efficient. You know, I think when we go to the cinema, we invest, you know, an hour and a half or two hours in this thing. And 
One of the great things I think about songs is efficiency. Within a few seconds, you can get transported somewhere. So looking back, I think maybe that was a click moment. The rest was gradual, you know. Started learning guitar when I moved to uh, to Australia at the age of 10, and then I slowly got into singing and yeah, as I was getting better and exploring, I, I realised that I had this thing that could move people and disarm them. Is it painful at times? Well, the process is painful and I think the self-doubt you encounter on the way is painful, but that's simply the predicament of being an artist. And we all sort of confront self-worth and identity, but I think as an artist, you know, you almost do that on a daily basis and that, that's the hard part. You burst onto the Australian music scene in 2005 with your debut album, Autumn Flow, which achieved platinum status, quite an achievement. This album became one of the most successful independent debuts in Australian music history and received three ARIA nominations, including Best Male Artist. This was followed by a series of albums over the years since then that achieved a host of award wins and nominations. Too many to delve into here. And I'd like to focus on one particular performance and then two albums. In April 2015, you were invited as the sole Australian artist to perform at the 100-year anniversary of the landing at Gallipoli, where you performed your song Safety of Distance with the Gallipoli Choir leading into the dawn service. Could you tell us how this came about and what that performance experience was like? Yeah, it came about through a connection to a beautiful guy called Rod Lockwood, who uh, is the event organiser there. And Rod was looking for performances that were perhaps, you know, outside of the usual performances that you find in these sort of military commemorations. And I had a chance to suggest a song called Safety of Distance, which has a central line, Compassion is the Measure of a Man, that I actually wrote in response to a story that I heard about Vietnam vets who went back to Vietnam and set up these houses of friendship, which encouraged people that went through the war on both sides to, you know, years later and in an attempt to humanise each other uh, and move forward as a healing process. And I, I was really moved by this story. And I wrote this song called Safety of Distance, which is about breaking down the, the barriers and, you know, the importance of compassion. Rod really, really liked this song and thought that it would fit within the context of the service. So I had, uh, as you mentioned, I had the, the great pleasure of going over there and, and performing it with the Gallipoli Choir and a, a military band. And yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, the most memorable thing is just the harshness of the landscape that you really only understand when you're there, the, the, the cold and the, the rugged landscape. And uh, you really get a sense of the suffering that must have gone down in uh, that part of the world. Well, I'd recommend uh, without hesitation that our listeners watch this incredibly moving performance and that can be found on YouTube. And I suppose there are elements of that that you carry with you uh, yeah, forever. It's uh, such a, a passionate uh, thing to watch. Your album, Compassion, and you've mentioned Compassion uh, a few times already, it's an album that I've listened to many times and have always found to be a very moving experience. At moments almost spiritual. It was the result of a collaboration with Nigel Westlake. This orchestral song cycle for voice and orchestra consists of original melodies and orchestration set to ancient texts in Hebrew and Arabic, all centred around profound and poetic messages enveloping the idea of compassion between human beings. Can you tell us a little about that collaboration and uh, also how your exploration of the ancient texts and the theme of compassion affected you? 
the seat of the work was actually Avinu Malkeinu. When I was starting out performing as a singer-songwriter, around about that time, I, um, I through a series of events, looked into Avinu Malkeinu because, you know, the melody had always been a haunting one, as we all know, but there's a beautiful line in it, which is, uh, and the way I read it was that compassion is like a plea for compassion to, to liberate us. And as you mentioned, I've, you know, been drawn to exploring the idea of compassion. And to me, that was a really beautiful sentiment that isn't just central to the Jewish way of life, but to one that I think, you know, can be extrapolated to a universally humanitarian message. It's a very long story of how I met Nigel, but basically it was uh, uh, at a performance I was performing my songs and I, I decided to finish the, the performance with a, an a cappella rendition of Avinu Malkeinu, which was sort of following the traditional melody but also adding you know, a series of inflections and, and intonations vocally that I felt made it my own. And at the end of the performance, I met Nigel for the first time, really, and through chatting we explored the idea of working together on an orchestral arrangement to Avinu Malkeinu in stark contrast to the way I'd only ever performed at a cappella. And that was the seed of it. And and we only thought that it might at best lead to a seven or eight minute orchestral work that the Sydney Symphony might consider performing as a sort of, uh, you know, opening to a greater work. And so we worked on this demo together, but when we sent it to the Sydney Symphony, their artistic director, Peter Chorney, came back to us and said, you know, we, we love this and we think there's something in it. We'd like to commission a full length work if you, if you guys are interested. And so we jumped at the opportunity, even though we, you know, we had no idea what we were going to do. And so I just took some time to think about what, where I wanted to go with it. And the, the natural thing for me was to, to see if I could get other Jewish songs and Jewish texts. But I wanted to create, to work on something which wasn't specific to one, one religion. You know, the, as I mentioned, uh, I was drawn to the universality of the message. And so I thought, well, what if I could look to the, uh, the Arabic world? I wonder if I could find something that says something similar. So I contacted a good friend, Walid Ali, who's now much more famous than I am, um, and uh, and he helped me and he helped me track down a, a beautiful proverb which had a very similar message, and and that was that was sort of the blueprint of it. And from there on, I I, I did some research into texts and proverbs that gave some sort of profound message about the idea of compassion. And, and where it ended up was a seven-movement orchestral song cycle, which, as you said, integrates ancient Hebrew and Arabic texts about compassion. And Avinu Malkainu is actually the only movement that's centred around a traditional melody. Everything else is, is original melodies and orchestration. Did the experience of doing that research leave you with an appreciation of some of the similarities between the two religions? There were things that surprised me. The similarity in language was one of the things that, that I found myself. I should mention at the beginning, I, I didn't feel that I had a license to actually perform the Arabic side of things. And I, I actually suggested to Nigel that we get someone who's a fluent Arabic speaker who grew up with Arabic culture and tradition to present that. And I, because I said, I, I look, I feel like an imposter. You know, I, I speak Hebrew. I grew up in Israel. I'm familiar with the religion and the culture. And and it was actually my father who said, oh, well, Nigel wouldn't have a bar of it. He said, no, it has to be you. You have to do it all. <laughs> but it was actually my father that convinced me because he, uh, he was born in Iraq and, and Arabic is actually his native, oh, native tongue. Wow. And he said, no, look, this is actually part of your heritage. You need to explore further. And, and so that uh, inspired me to, yeah, learn, not learn how to speak Arabic, but learn my way around the text and how to pronounce them and, uh, and sing them. So, yeah, and through doing that, I found so many similarities in language you know, the the uh, the, the root word of compassion is actually one of the names for God in both religions as well. That was a beautiful discovery too. So all these, these beautiful little jewels that I found along the way. 
And have you explored music beyond the boundaries of the Middle East, uh, like Indigenous music, for example? Look, not deeply. I mean, Compassion even is not a Middle Eastern music. In fact, Nigel and I made a concerted effort not to make it sound like we are trying to write a Middle Eastern work because that's not his background. His background is in writing Western classical music. And while I, in the work, infuse it certainly with Middle Eastern-inspired vocal inflections and trills, it's very much a hybrid. It draws some from the cantorial world. It draws some from Indian raga singing. Um, so, yeah, it's a sort of it's a hybrid that I've, I've kind of made my own. We, we didn't want to make it too culturally specific uh, or derivative so that it uh, transmits that universality. So we now come to your latest album titled Animal in Hiding, which is a collaboration with Dominy Forster. The songs I've listened to are quite beautiful with a mellow, wonderful sound and feature heartfelt lyrics. How did your recording with Dominy come about? And can you give us any details on the album release and uh, future touring plans? Yeah, sure, Maury. Thanks for the kind words. A friend of mine is a music lecturer and he a few years ago invited me to come as a guest performer to an annual songwriting competition that they have for the music students. I went in and I performed and uh, through it I I saw the students perform their songs and there was this beautiful songbird that came out and performed a song of her and she won the competition and and that was Domini and and I approached her and and asked her whether she wanted to come uh, and support me on some shows I was doing through regional Victoria, some solo shows. And she did. And that was a good seven or eight years ago and just saw how audiences reacted to her. And through uh, developing a musical relationship, I'd often invite her onto stage and we'd sing a duet or two together. And, and that's how a musical relationship grew. And coming up to my last solo album, we thought, you know, we know that we love singing together. Why don't we try and write together and see what happens? And, and we wrote a song called Where Will We Be, which featured on my last solo release. And yeah, we just felt there was a very special synergy that lent itself to a further exploration of a collaborative work. So in 2019, we started writing and this was just before COVID and, uh, <laughs> and we got about halfway through writing a body of songs and, uh, and then we, we got locked down. So we had to continue writing through lockdown and finish the work, but it was nice to have a, something to focus on. Uh, and then between lockdowns, we, we ran to the studio and put down our parts. And then everything else, all the other musicians on the album, we had to, to work with a producer and do it remotely. So it was a challenging process and not one I'd, I'd prefer to repeat. I missed having the energy in a room of musicians and communicating yes. and organically coming up with things. But that's what we had to do. And it's nice to now come out of uh, the last 18 months and, and I suppose have something to show for it. So, uh, yeah, it's called Animal in Hiding. It's available now on all streaming services and, and there's a CD of it as well. And we'll be touring and doing a lot of shows next year throughout Australia with it. When will you be in Melbourne, do you know? There's going to be a, an outdoor stage set up outside the Malthouse Theatre in January and mm-hmm. we're going to be performing there on the 21st and 22nd of January. So they're just about to release tickets for, for all those shows, yeah. Well, I certainly recommend our listeners uh, and and their friends to get a ticket and get in fast because I'm sure wherever you perform, there'll be sell-out shows. I have to say that uh, Domini's voice, to my ear, is just so pure. It's it's such a beautiful Mm. sound. It's uh, a delight to listen to, as as yours is, of course. Thanks, Um, (laughs) Mike. Lior's singer-songwriter lauded internationally, continues to produce music of great honesty and beauty. In Hebrew, Lior means my light, and I can only say that your music does shine a magical light on all who listen to it. Thank you for the music, and thanks also for being on L'Chaim. Very much appreciated. L'Chaim, thanks so much, Maureen. And now let's listen to Gloria, a haunting track from Lior and Domini's latest album, Animal in Hiding. Mm-hmm. 
find it easy to look right through you, and so do I. I walk you home 'cause you need me to make it back for the six o'clock news. The MythBusters. Just the facts, ma'am. We're sending a strong message today. Say free, 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 free. Make some noise for yourselves. Free, free. 
You should be familiar with the inane chant, Free, Free Palestine, from pro-Palestinian activists, usually supplemented by From the River to the Sea. The one-man band on 3CR's Palestine Remembered program, Nasser Mashni, whose show is devoted to bashing Israel every week, was speaking with Canadian Mark Ayash, who opposes the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, spreads anti-Israel conspiracy theories and defends terrorism. Ayash has also supported anti-Israel agitators and demonised Israel and Zionists. In this case, Ayash was defending the black Canadian pro-Palestinian shitstirer Desmond Cole, who considers himself an anti-racist activist, who however discounts the significance of anti-Semitism. He mentioned the phrase free Palestine. And, oh, uh, what? They, they, what? Sorry? What? Free Palestine? I, I know, I know. How, how dare he include the freedom of Palestinians in an equity talk? <laughs> and that's all he said. Just free Palestine. Just free Palestine. And that invited all of the disruptions to his talk, all of the uh, false uh, accusations and mislabeling of, of Desmond Cole and his comments as anti-Semitic. The discussion was claiming that there is nothing wrong in calling for a free Palestine. The trouble is that free, free Palestine is a euphemism for the elimination of the State of Israel. It is a war cry that is quickly accompanied by more overtly aggressive calls for Israel's destruction by his followers who don't mince their words. Me, I said that. Death to Israel was one reply to Cole. Another wrote to Cole, I mean, it should be in the destruction of Israel because it was founded on ethnic cleansing, massacres, oppression and slow genocide and still commits most of that. Wants to continue and most citizens don't even want to cease fire when bombing Gaza. It shouldn't exist. If people interpret free Palestine as being violent, it is because they are benefiting from Palestinians being unfree, period. In the same way that if you answer Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, you must have some investment in Black Lives being more undervalued. Otherwise, you wouldn't quarrel with the statement, end quote. It's certainly hard to fathom the twists of confounding logic coming from Cole to justify his support for the Palestinian people. Cole used his platform to spread misinformation about Israel completely erase the Jewish perspective on recent contentious issues and deny the Jewish experience of anti-Semitism, the policy director of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center wrote in a statement. She astutely noted there has been an alarming rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the Toronto District School Board and its schools, and the remarks by Cole feed into the normalisation of anti-Semitism in the education system. Don't be fooled by Palestinian chants like Free Free Palestine and so forth, Don't be fooled by their hue and cry with the incessant appeal to human rights and international law that are readily adopted by self-righteous virtue signalers that think they put themselves beyond criticism if they hide their fundamentally anti-Zionist, Israelophobic views under a veneer of scholarship that very thinly disguises their underlying malevolent intentions. Tune into the Israel Connection next week when I will reveal in an interview with David Matas, the Senior Legal Counsel for B'nai B'rith Canada, what has been going on in the land of the free at Toronto University and the Toronto District School Board, dealing with a rash of pro-Palestinianism that shows what can happen when academic institutions come under attack from those who want to exploit calls for academic freedom to push the Palestinian cause. This Mythbuster is by David Schulberg from the Israel Connection Programme that listeners can listen to on J-Air. 
broadcasting live each week on Wednesdays from 4 to 5 p.m. and repeated Fridays 1 till 2 p.m. Now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Anti-Semitic abuse at Crown. Christensen under fire over COVID comparison. A principled stance at the UN. Bringing a smile to nurses' faces. Judge and jury. Rabbi Etlinger farewelled. Time running out for Iran nuclear talks. Israel on alert after ramming and stabbing. Kashrut in crossfire at Canadian Uni. Dispute over Plazao Memorial. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery Subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au Right, I think our listeners will have to agree with my comment in tonight's intro that we have another full Lachaim lined up, and that it was. Back in late September, our guest on Lachaim was Ernie Friedlander with the B'nai B'rith, JNF Australia and the Australian Jewish News Changemaker Awards. Well, the awards were announced on Monday, and we here at L'Chaim would like to congratulate all the winners for the acknowledgement of their great work. I want to make mention of one young recipient changemaker, Benji Orwin, who's been a guest of mine on air a couple of times, first up in May 2019, when he was only nine. Benji collects socks and distributes them to people in need all over the world. Benji now, in year six, continues to grow his not-for-profit Socks for Support, and was recently selected as the face of this year's Mitzvah Day. Benji organised a group of Year 6 peers to assist him wrap up hundreds of pairs of socks to include in hampers for the homeless. Well done and muzzle tov to change maker Benji Orwood. Keep up your great work and we'll chat to you on Lachaim in February, sock boy. Speaking of change makers, the late Eddie Jakku, who passed away most recently at the age of 101, was a real change maker. The State Memorial for Eddie will take place at the Sydney Town Hall at 10am next Wednesday, the 15th of December, 2021. For details on the memorial, the 10am live stream, online condolence book and accessibility information, please visit www.nsw.gov.au forward slash state services. I was blessed to have interviewed Eddie twice, the last time when he turned 100. Eddie Jaku, a real change maker. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show Square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Lachaim podcasts are also available at JWire, Digital Jewish News Daily for Australia and New Zealand. 
please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lechaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. We're closing out tonight's Lachaim with a song from one of my favourite singers, Nat King Cole, with his beautiful popular standard, Smile. Smile is a song based on an instrumental theme used in the soundtrack for Charlie Chaplin's 1936 movie, Modern Times. Chaplin composed a music inspired by Puccini's Tosca. The lyrics and the title were added in 1954, based on lines and themes from the film. Nat King Cole is telling the listener to cheer up and that there's always a bright tomorrow, just as long as you smile. So please, keep on smiling with a L'chaim or two. So thank you for tuning in and please join us again next week on L'chaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai and peace. Your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds In the sky You'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe You'll see the sun come shining through for you Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear Maybe ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile